Hey, Christ City, just before we jump into the message today, just one quick announcement to you. Really, it's just a huge thank you. Thank you so much for your generosity uh, through the first half of this year so far. We have just sent out from our office all of our mid-year giving update letters. Uh, That has a personal update for you and then an update for uh, where we're at as a local church in terms of January 1 to June 30th. And so if you have given at any point in that window of time, from January 1, 2021 to January 3rd, or June 30th, and, and you have not yet received a letter, I'll just tell you right now, it's because we don't have your contact info correct on file. And if you could email us at info at ChristCityChurch.ca, make sure that we have the correct address for you. We want to get that out to you as soon as possible. And again, just thank you so much for your faithfulness and your generosity so far this year. Okay, now as you just heard read, we are going to be looking at Psalms 42 and 43 as one unit of scripture today, and I want us to consider what the psalmist is getting at here as he talks about depression and spiritual malaise or the discontentedness in our soul, but but in light of the truth of the gospel. That's what we're looking at today. We need to learn from the psalmist here how to anchor our hope in God even in the midst of the storms of sorrow and depression that may come into our lives. I've been quite open with my own battle uh, with depression in the past, and, and this text itself has been one of the main places of the meditation of my heart in those dark times. Um, it's not meant to be testimonial today as I preach, but, but I, I don't preach about this as an outsider. Uh, I'm not here today as a theoretician. This is not a theory to me. Like many of you, Psalms 42 and 43 are all too real to my personal experience. Some of what we find in Psalms 42 and 43 are what sustained me, as I said, in the darkest days and really in the deepest valleys that I went through at that time. So I hope that it will be some encouragement to you. And if not directly to you, I hope that it will equip you to help love and serve those around you who may be struggling with some kind of depressive episodes and things like that in life. Um, I should say this to be very clear as well. I'm not trying here to present myself as an authority on depression. I'm looking at the text of scripture. Um, I'm, I'm not an authority on depression in terms of medical, spiritual, or otherwise. That, that's not what I'm saying. All, all that I'm saying is, as I have said before, it's a real battle. I think we should talk about it. And historically, the church has not always done a really great job at dealing with this topic. Um, and, and I think it's important for us. And so I want to engage it today on that grounds. Uh, There's actually a a woman I want to tell you about. Um, Her name is Julian of Norwich, and she suffered greatly. She almost died when she was 30 years old. And during that time, she had a vision where God showed her something small in her hand, the size of a hazelnut. Now, she wrote this in the end of the 14th century, so that language is a little bit antiquated, but, but I want to read it to you. And in this, he showed me a little thing. The quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed. And it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And I answered, I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. In this little thing, I saw three properties. Now notice this. The first is that God made it. The second, that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. So in the midst of her suffering, what she had revealed to her, 
is that God made it, that God loves it, and that God keeps it. And because of what she wrote and because of the circumstances surrounding this vision that she had, many have been comforted in their trials by the idea of a little hazelnut in the palm of their hand. I have a friend who struggled with debilitating depression for quite some time, and he carried a hazelnut in in his front pocket every day for over three years. And when his suffering was overwhelming, he would take that hazelnut out and hold it in the palm of his hand, and he would be reminded that God made him, that God loves him, and that God keeps him. That God made him, that God loves him, and that God keeps him, even in the midst of the trials he was suffering. Christ City, God made you, God loves you, and God keeps you in the midst of any of the circumstances you're going through. And with that in mind, let's look at this text today. I want us to look at Psalms 42 and 43 in three sections. And at the end of each section, it's marked with a a repeated refrain, a repeated idea. Each section ends with the same words. I'll show you the first one. Psalm 42, verse 5 says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's this repetitive refrain that anchors the truth of what the psalmist is expressing about his circumstances and situation. We're going to look at each of these three sections in succession. And as an outline, you can think about it like this. He is parched, overwhelmed, and misjudged. The psalmist is parched overwhelmed, and misjudged. So first, our psalmist is parched. Look at Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's verses like these that we see inscribed on little tiny gold plaques on beautifully framed pictures of the forest where there's a deer standing beside a babbling brook, a beautiful little creek, and the deer is standing there as though it just walked out of the forests of you know, Vancouver Island or the forests of the lower mainland here, and there's this beautiful idyllic scene where there's just a deer standing there as a deer pants for water. The problem is, The deer that the psalmist would have been talking about lived in a desert and water was not something that came clean out of the tap like it does at your house or like a little babbling brook everywhere that you walk in the forests of the lower mainland of British Columbia. This is a cry of desperation. Put the deer in the right context if you're going to have a beautifully framed photo with this verse inscribed upon it. This is a cry for thirst in the midst of a drought. This is saying my soul thirsts for God like a parched wild animal in the desert pants for a stream. Not like his life depends upon it, but because his life depends upon it. Verse 3 says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? His tears are accusing him. Where is your God? Have you ever ever gotten to the place where your desperation, where where crying out is all that you can do? Maybe not you. Maybe you've not been in the state where weeping is all that you can muster. Maybe someone close to you has. And, And when all you can do is sit there and weep, and all you can do is feel this level of pain in your soul, becomes very easy to question 
right? It becomes very easy to say, if God was really for me, why would he not give me a deeper sense of his presence? Verse four says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is remembering a better time, leading worship with the congregation of his people. It's not far away from God's people. In, in his remembrance, he is with them together, worshiping. See, he is thirsting for God and longing for that kind of experience again. He, he just doesn't have it. He's not feeling that. The writer of this psalm is giving us an account of the unhappiness of his soul and his thirst for God. He's spiritually parched and he knows that God and God alone can satisfy that thirst which is how he gets to the end of the first section of the first of the three refrains that I'm going to take you to in verse five, where it says, why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's parched. And he's preaching to himself to hope in God. Secondly, our psalmist is overwhelmed. Look at the second half of verse 6 in Psalm 42. It says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. See, his soul is downcast and unhappy, and he remembers God and his faithfulness. Yes. But have you ever been caught up in the waves of the sea? I remember the first time that I got battered and pounded by the waves when I was trying to learn how to surf. And this prairie boy wasn't sure he was coming up for oxygen again. And the waves just pound and the waves batter and the waves toss you. And you're like a little rag doll being tossed about in the roaring sea. I was overwhelmed. I had been overwhelmed by the surf. This psalmist is overwhelmed by his downcast soul. Okay, it, it's popular in our generation of songwriters to use water metaphors the same way the psalmist uses it in verse 1 of Psalm 42, where, where the psalmist is parched and longing for God. But most of the time in the rest of the Bible, all over the place, we, we see the image of raging rivers and waterfalls and waves as a picture of overwhelming chaos. That's the biblical metaphor that we're to take here. It's chaos. It's not nice, gentle peace. Verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's overwhelmed and he feels like God has forgotten him. He's oppressed by his enemies and his adversaries taunt him and mock him and say, where is your God? See, you might feel right now in this moment in your life that your circumstances are taunting you with the question of where is your God? 
The psalmist's enemies accuse him the very same way as his tears did in the first section we looked at. His tears and his enemies say, God has forsaken you. But he comes back to the refrain. He comes back to the place where he holds out hope in verse 11. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Christ City, hope in God. He created you, he loves you, and he keeps you. He is parched, he's overwhelmed, and our psalmist has been misjudged and maligned. Our psalmist has been misjudged and maligned. Verse 43, or Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Church, what does it feel like when people falsely accuse you? What does it feel like when people speak ill of you in ways that are just not true? When you're slandered, when you're defamed, when you're bad-mouthed? When people, whether they love you or not, misjudge you, they misjudge your actions and your motives and your heart. For me personally, this is crushing. I think being misunderstood is one of the most difficult things to deal with in life. If there's one thing out of the three that we're looking at here, parched and overwhelmed and misjudged, if there's one of the three that can cause me to spiral really quickly into a very, very dark place, it's this third one. It can send us into a dark place where we say things like this in verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He says, God, why am I so down and why do I feel like I'm in such a dark place? Just because people have spoken and and done things that have misjudged or maligned me, I feel oppressed by it. It's not just the things that people say, and we need to hear this. It's not just the things that people say. It's what the enemy, the devil, does with those words that are spoken over us those words and those actions that come from others that are twisted and perverted by the enemy that can be used to isolate you and actually just break your heart. Nevertheless, he goes on, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to, my, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's parched and he's overwhelmed and he's misjudged, but he comes back to say hope in God, for I shall praise him again, my salvation and my God. So Christ City, why do we feel sorrowful and depressed? This psalm gives us a few options. Okay, it could be that we're parched for God's presence. We just need to lean in and find him again. It could be that we're overwhelmed by life and the circumstances surrounding us, which is all too familiar in the last year and a half. 
could be that we've been misjudged by people, which again is all too familiar in the last year and a half of isolation and problems where people have just been just fighting and quick to jump on others and make accusations. But these are just three things. We have to ask ourselves the question, what else could lead to spiritual depression like we're seeing experienced here in Psalms 42 and 43? Uh, our helper along the way of understanding this is a guy named Richard Baxter, who in his generation in the 17th century wrote um, a book that was called then The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith. And if you wrote books 400 years ago, you got to title them like that. The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith. Melancholy is, is then what we now call depression. And he basically lays out the causes and cures of depression in this little book. Um, he, he essentially says that there's four causes of depression. And again, I'm, I'm distilling a lot of what he said in a fairly difficult to read book. But he says there could be a physical cause. You need medicine, you need food, you need rest. Because we're physical beings. And we need to pay attention to our body. Because sometimes it can lead us to feeling the kind of way that we're seeing experienced here in Psalms 42 and 43. Secondly, he says that there's a psychological cause to this kind of spiritual depression or this melancholy and overmuch sorrow. The psychological cause, we can be cast down in our temperament and, and what we need is love, potentially some affirmation, some support, some help. This is where family and I really believe the, the community of the church is so critical that we get into each other's lives and support one another in this way. He says there can be a moral cause, a moral cause. This is the recognition of ongoing unrepentant sin, right? We might feel guilty or we might be angry or we might be angry and feel guilty about being that angry, that there's something going on here that needs to be repented of. This is speaking about the moral cause. This is a, perhaps a violation of our conscience where we have willingly sinned and we've not repented and made it right. And, and we know, and it causes us to go into a dark place. This happens regularly. He also says there can be a demonic cause of melancholy and overmuch sorrow. Like C.S. Lewis wrote, we, can, we, we as people, as Christians, often err on one side or the other. We're, we're either completely enamored with the demonic, where we think every little thing that happens is bad in life is a demonic cause. You know, you hit a red light on the way to, to you know, wherever you needed to be, and somehow that's the enemy trying to put a roadblock in your place or whatever, and you, you, you have that way of thinking. You're, you're overly enamored with the demon, uh, demonic. On the other hand, there's probably, I would say, more of us in the city of Vancouver that are lulled into passivity and forget that we even have a demonic enemy. That, that can be a cause of this melancholy that we're talking about. It can be a physical cause, a psychological cause, a moral cause, or a demonic cause. And it can be more than one, and they can be interactive. And that's what he talks about in the book, is the way that these interact with one another. It's actually, I mean, for 400 years old, an amazingly nuanced and accurate way of explaining the issue that I'm talking about here. Right? Obviously, the writer of this psalm is dealing with a heavy level of oppression on his soul, and he cries out about the adversaries who are taunting him with a question that, that they have implied that God has abandoned him. The enemies of your soul can pile up. When they weave their attack together, coming against you effectively, it can be difficult to stand in the face of it. 
And the question for us must be at this point, why does God not answer us immediately all of the time? Why? There's a pastor named A.W. Tozer, author, pastor, theologian. He said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I want to say it again because it needs to register with you. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Christ City, do we believe this? Do we think there's a reason that Jacob, in the book of Genesis, walked with a limp? Greatly blessed, but wounded. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to take it away, and he did not. David had trial after trial after trial in his life. As the king of Israel, the king of God's people. Jeremiah was a prophet. They called the weeping prophet because of the way he lamented and wept over the state of things in his life and in the life of God's people. Elijah the prophet hid alone in fear of Jezebel and a whole bunch of other people, just hid and got really down. Felt like he was the only faithful one left. Why does God not answer us immediately as we suffer? Christ said, could this be a means of God's grace to us? I just want to present it as an idea. Could it be that us being allowed to be bruised in this way, could it be a means of God's grace? God used my own seasons of depression to reveal some of the ways that I was not trusting him and where I was allowing idols to really control the way I thought and the way I lived. I think he allowed me to go through it, knowing that it would cause me to get on my face and to trust him and him alone. The reason he bruises us and allows us to feel like at times he's withdrawn his presence a little bit is because he's gracious and he loves us enough not to leave us how we are. He allows us to be bruised, not broken, but bruised in a way that reveals our idolatry and our sin and reveals how badly we need to shift our gaze from the things that we are placing our hope in back to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The bruising of depression that causes us to cast aside our idols and repent of our sin and repent of our misplaced hopes, it is a bruising of love and grace from a heavenly Father who knows us best. So why not trust that his ways are higher? See, in the same way that you would experience pain... You can't selectively numb it. You can't selectively numb your pain. So what happens is, if you are trusting in something else to make you feel better, you end up numbing your emotions as well on the positive side. Sometimes your joy is hidden on the opposite side of some messy, painful sorrow, and God knows it, and he knows that it will be worth it as you process that. You can't selectively numb your pain without losing the joy that also accompanies everything we do in our lives. 
So when we're in this and when we're feeling this kind of malaise or melancholy, overmuch sorrow or depression, whatever title you want to assign to it, when you're feeling the way this psalmist is writing, how can we begin to move out of it? Just two quick things. The first is, don't hide your emotions. And don't hide from your emotions. You need to learn how to pray your emotions. You have to take stock of how you feel, and you need to recognize that there are three things you can do with your emotions. You've heard me say this before. You can vent them, or you book some time to get together with a friend or a loved one, and you just vent how you feel. And they listen. You can vent them. You can suppress them, or you just shove them deep down back inside. You will not come out. Or you can pray them. You can vent your emotions. You can suppress your emotions. Or you can come before the God of the universe who loves you more than you could ever comprehend, and you can say, here's how I feel. And the Psalms give us language for that kind of prayer. Second thing I see the psalmist do here is something that I think we would do well to be mindful of. We would do well to remember. What does he do? He talks to himself about how he feels, and he talks himself into some hope and remembrance of who God is. So the question is, are you allowing yourself to talk, or are you talking to yourself? Listen to how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote uh, what he said about this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, all my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And what does he say? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Christ City, the question is, when we speak to ourselves, what are we saying? Do we believe the trouble of the day or do we remind ourselves of the promises of God? Do we start to get real cranky or do we take out a pen and paper and make a list of things we're grateful for? Because it will change the way you think. Do we drown our sorrow with God's word or do we drown our sorrow with some other failing substitute designed to mask our pain and make ourselves feel better? We live in a generation of self-medication and I'm just going to plead with you for a moment not to live that way. Go to God's word. Express to him in prayer how you feel. Hope in God. We need to preach to ourselves. But we need to preach the sufficiency of our Savior as it pertains to anchoring our hope. That's what we need to preach. Even in the worst moments of despair, we need to say to ourselves, hope in God. 
and come back to the place where we're mindful of the reality that he is sufficient to hold us in every situation. Let me close with what I think will be a very helpful way for all of us. It's helpful for me to think about all of this. You start by getting yourself out of the center and off the throne. You start by getting yourself out of the center and off of the throne, and you make sure that your central focus is a suffering and victorious Christ. You make sure that the one on the throne, the enthroned one in your life, is a suffering and victorious Christ. So when you're parched, remember the one who hung on the cross, atoning for the sin of the world. In John chapter 19, verse 28, it says that Jesus, to those gathered around him as he was being crucified on that desert hill outside of Jerusalem, they they heard him say, I thirst. He was parched on the cross, and just like the psalmist here says, his thirst was the thirst of a man who was separated from God and his people, and the thirst of a man who was suffering a great trial with the question of, where is my God? Christ's parched thirst and atoning death is what leads us into new life. He understands parched. When you are overwhelmed and you feel like you are being cut off from God in the midst of the chaos of your circumstances, please remember your Savior, who in the Garden of Gethsemane said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then he prayed, knowing what was in front of him, that in front of him was his betrayal, his beatings and and being scourged and being crucified and taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sin of the world. He knew what was in front of him and, and having knowledge of what was in front of him, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Remember Jesus who did not only feel overwhelmed and forgotten and forsaken, but who in actuality was overwhelmed with the task at hand for him, who did bear upon his body the full weight of the wrath of God for the sin of humanity. When he cried out on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, and he said, Jesus, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you never would be. His overwhelming sense of forsakenness makes a way for our eternal acceptance. Jesus understands overwhelmed. And when you are misjudged and maligned, when you are misunderstood, remember your Savior, who was misjudged and maligned and misunderstood, who was mocked and falsely accused and condemned, and who was silent, knowing that God would vindicate him. It hurts to be misunderstood. No one knows that better than Jesus. The one who was parched and overwhelmed and forsaken and misunderstood is the one who satisfies and calms and brings peace and understands and has promised us that we will never be left and never be forsaken. Even in the darkest nights and in the deepest valleys. Remember that he created you 
that he loves you, and that he keeps you. Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful that I get to know you. I'm so grateful that you've drawn me into relationship with you through the work of your son, Jesus. I'm so grateful that you've given me your Holy Spirit. And for all of us, Father, we're just grateful to know you and to follow your son, Jesus, and to try and seek the the way of Jesus in our lives, to live in the power of your Spirit. But God, we're, we're grateful that we don't serve a God who does not understand what we're going through. We serve Jesus who is well acquainted with it. And I pray, God, that that would just be deeply encouraging to every person who's hearing this and praying this with me right now. Father, would you strengthen us in the core of our being that whether we are parched and longing for you or feeling overwhelmed with the chaos of life or whether we have been maligned and misunderstood, that we would just know you're with us. That we would know that you will draw us through this season and you will not leave us in this place. Take us through the dark valleys. Help us to know that there is new life on the other side. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.